Us friends love a good story. We love stories. Stories inspire us. Stories help us to see us, to see ourselves and each other. Well, today we are diving into a story that has been celebrated ever since Jesus told it. Not only celebrated by those who are pastors and theologians, but even celebrated by renowned storytellers as well. In fact, there were two separate occasions where two of the most influential literary minds, two of the best storytellers of recent times, were asked, what is the best short story ever written? And both Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson both said, it's the story of the parable of the prodigal son. What is it about this story that so resonates with people when they hear it? Well, part of the reason that we love this story is because this story here in this chapter tells the story of the whole book. There's a certain sense that this story encapsulates the rest of the Bible. We not only love this story because of the story, but we love this story because of its storyteller. This is Jesus Christ himself telling the story. We love this story as well. Why? Because we know it's our story. Because we know that everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who has been transformed by the Father's love, at some time, at some point, we walked away. We wandered away. We rebelled against this good Father. And we felt the bitterness, the emptiness, and the sting of our sin. So this story is our story. But not just our story, this story is his story. In fact, all of life is his story. All of history is his story. How many of us love rags to riches stories? Rags to riches, right? Well, this story is a riches to rags story. But not just that. It's not just about what he had and what he lost. It's not just a riches to rags story. No, it's a riches to rags, to redemption, to reconciliation. This story inspires us, but it also changes our categories. Every single person, even if we don't wear glasses, we all look at our lives through a lens. And every single person, whether you're organized or not, we all put people in certain categories Jesus tells this story to reveal the Father's heart and to change our categories. What we're going to do to understand this story is we're going to go back to the background of the story before we dive into the text of the parable of the prodigal son. We want to understand the context. So we're actually going to start today's study in the Gospel of Luke 15, but in the first two verses. So hopefully you still have your Bible open. Let's look at who the principal players are in this story and also ask the question as we read it, as we study it, how do we see ourselves in this story? As we read the Bible, when we have a heart to believe, we find the Bible is reading us back. This is the word of the Lord, Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Him is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let's pause right there and reflect. 
This is the context. This is the backdrop. These are the principal players in this story. Right out of the gate, we are heard and introduced to tax collectors and sinners and how they were drawing near to Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Holy Messiah of God's people. Jesus, the one who is both prophet, king, and priest. Jesus Christ, he is now welcoming and also entering into fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. Now, when you hear tax collector, I want you to think less IRS, and I want you to think more treacherous. These tax collectors were people that were recruited by Rome to extort the money from these Jewish families and Jewish citizens and Jewish neighbors. So envision this. This is how it used to work. Rome would come in and take conquest of a country and a nation. Envision this in the United States of America. God forbid. We have a foreign enemy that attacks us, overthrows us, replaces our government, but instead of having their soldiers collect taxes, they recruit people from our own families and from our own neighborhoods to collect the taxes. It's brilliant, even as it's devious. Why? Because you don't get angry at Rome. You get angry at your neighbor. You get angry at your friend. You get angry at your family member. Because what has happened? This is not just a person who is greedy, extorting money. This is a treacherous traitor who is now working for the enemy. These tax collectors were despised. It's not just tax collectors, though. It's sinners. Now, we don't know what the uh, actual sin was that made these sinners sinners, but the fact that they're known as sinners means they're pretty good at it. They have a public reputation of making spectacular mistakes. These are people, when you see them, you kind of know them. You know their story. They're more infamous than they are famous. And here is Jesus. Here is our holy, holy, holy Son of God and Savior meeting with them, dignifying them, honoring them by sharing a table with them. In an honor and shame society, especially in uh, Israel at the time, it was a big deal. It was a really big deal to share a meal, to welcome someone into your home. Not only because there were some Old Testament laws and rules about how when someone did sin, they were to be put out of the community for a short time so that they can be reconciled, so that they can be cleansed and come back in the community. But now, what do we see? We have a whole generation of self-righteous, judgmental Pharisees and scribes. A generation that's trying to raise up and bring about a moral revolution. But what is happening here with this moral revolution is that they are adding to God's law. They are living not out of love for God, but they are living for the vanity of religious praise. So on the outside, they look very holy. But on the inside, they have no love for God and no love for you. Jesus even put it like this. He said these Pharisees, these scribes, the religious establishment at the time, they're like whitewashed tombs. They look shiny, pretty, polished on the outside, but full of dead man's bones on the inside. So this is the story. 
These are the principal players. You have Jesus, who is now the one who brings the new covenant. He is now the one who can make sinners clean. He is now the righteousness for the unrighteous. Now, as we will see, the temple is no longer needed because Jesus Christ, his life, his blood, his sacrifice will make us right with God. So yes, he's welcoming in the sinners. And then the Pharisees say this, this man, can you hear them grumbling? I almost hear them slithering like a snake, right? This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, what we take as really great news, like I hear that, this man, Jesus, the son of God, he eats with sinners. He welcomes them. He receives them. I take that as fantastic news, right? Thank God that Jesus will welcome me in. Thank God that Jesus will receive me. Thank God that Jesus wants fellowship with me. Praise God for that. Why? Because I know how jacked up I am. I know how much of a sinner I am. Oh, but this, by the lips of the Pharisees, this was not words to commend Jesus. When, he, when they say he receives sinners and eats with them, that's not commending him. That's condemning him. So what Jesus is going to do, he's going to tell three stories, three powerful stories, three parables that reveals the Father's heart, but also reveals the rejoicing that happens in heaven when one of these sinners comes home, when one of these sinners is found, when one of these sinners is transformed and redeemed. So while the Pharisees are filled with resentment, heaven is filled with rejoicing. The first story, let's look at it, shall we? I'm just going to summarize because I really want to spend most of our time in the story of the lost son or the lost sons. Here in the first story, Jesus tells a parable about a good shepherd, a story about a man who left the 99 sheep to go get that one wandering sheep. The shepherd knew how dangerous it was for that sheep to wander off. That shepherd knew that the sheep could literally get stuck, fall off a cliff, and was very susceptible to the attack of prey. So what does this one, does this shepherd do? He leaves the 99, and he goes and gets the one. He puts that sheep on his back, and then he brings them back into the flock. This is a wonderful moment. It's an exciting moment. And as verse 6 says, if you're looking at your Bible, the shepherd says, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus explains in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Oh, that's good news. Now, did all 99 need repentance? Absolutely. Absolutely. The sheep weren't perfect. Sheep are cute. Sheep are cuddly. But sheep can bite. And sheep ain't that bright. I mean, it can really literally follow the crowd off the cliff. No, the truth is, our good shepherd, our chief shepherd Jesus, values the one so much he's willing to leave the 99. Friends, this is a great application for us. Not only to know that when that one is found, heaven rejoices. When that one is brought back to the flock, heaven is celebrating and partying but it also helps us in our mission, does it not? Friends, God was not as the chief shepherd, as 
the good shepherd, not content, satisfied. He didn't seem like his mission was finished because he had 99. Listen, if I get 99 in a test, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. If I get 99 out of anything, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And yes, even today, churches, we can feel pretty good about the group that we have, right? We can feel pretty good about the comfort level that we have with the people around us because they look like us, they act like us, they think like us. Oh, but you know what our good shepherd Jesus does? He's not content yet. He's not satisfied yet, if I can use that language. His mission isn't done yet. Oh, would we be willing to step out of our comfort zones and be a church that goes and gets the lost sheep and brings them home? Would we not be content just to have our crowd, not just to have our clique, not just to have our group, but to reflect the Father's heart and go seek and save by God's grace with the power of the gospel that one wandering sheep? So here in the next story, the theme continues, more rejoicing. Now it's a woman who is the owner of 10 silver coins, and she loses one, so she cleans the whole house, she searches the whole house, and then finally she finds the last coin, and it says here, now in verse 9, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. And then verse 10, Jesus says, just so, again, repeated, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner that turns from self and sin and returns to Christ and to God. There is rejoicing in heaven. There is celebration in heaven. There's a party going on in heaven. I once heard this. I love this. A man wrote this poem talking about what leads heaven to celebrate. He said this. Listen. When the Model T first hit the street, it didn't bring all of heaven to its feet. And when the first computer was born, they didn't blow old Gabriel's horn. There's only one thing that we're sure about that can make all those angels jump and shout. It's when a sinner makes the Lord his choice. That's when the angels rejoice. Now, when rock and roll became a sensation, I'll just keep going. When rock and roll became a sensation, there was no angelic celebration. But when one lost sinner comes back home, they jump for joy around the throne. When one person comes back to Christ, when one person is brought from death to life, darkness to light, hell to heaven, heaven celebrates, rejoicing. Should it not lead to rejoicing in our own hearts? Then it should it not also lead to a realignment of our categories. So both this story of a shepherd and this, both this story of a woman who owned coins all culminates and all leads not to sheep and coins, but to sons, to a family, to a father. And this is the story of the prodigal son. All eyes on scripture, verse 11. This is so powerful. Verse 11, Luke 15, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I'm in verse 14. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Let's pause and reflect right there. Can you envision this story? Can you imagine? This is a father who's not just a father, but this father, it would seem, also owns an estate. This father also has a certain amount of wealth and influence. This father is the father of two sons. The younger son comes to him and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. When did you get in your inheritance? Back in the ancient Near East? When the father deceased. The son is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. The son is saying to the dad, all that matters to me is not who you are, but what you can give me. The son is saying to the dad, I'd rather be selfish and live in a fatherless world to pursue my pleasures than to live here and love you. Cold. So that's why, yes, we love this story, but you have to remember, who's the crowd? Who's the audience that Jesus is telling the story to? He's telling it to Jewish people. He's telling it to tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees. When the son does this in the story, everyone would gasp. Oh, how disrespectful. What is one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. This is the epitome of dishonoring the father. So the son does something scandalous. Everybody gasps. Oh my gosh. And then something happens which would lead them to gasp again. What? The father actually does it. The father says, okay, here you go. Listen, I got three boys, right? If my boys ever came up to me and said, dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I only care about your money and not you. Dad, I'm leaving with all the money, all the, the things that you've earned over your whole life. What would I do? I say, boy, you better run. <laughs> First off, their inheritance would be about $5, but that's second to the point. Boy, you better run. Now, of course, Jesus is telling this story to what? Communicate the reality of not just the younger son, but all humanity. We are created by a good God. We are loved by a good Father. He has given us life. He has given us blessings. He has given us breath. Some of us, He has given us family. He has given us children. He has given us health. I know we all struggle. He's given us financial blessings. Most of all, He's given us His Son, Jesus Christ. He's given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit to comfort us to care for us. He's given, 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 given. What do we say? We're not interested. You give, I'm going. You give, I'm going to take, and I'm going to run. So this is what we do, right? We run from God. We rebel against him. We deny him. We use his name in vain. We hurt each other. We lie to each other. We betray each other. Over and over again, every single day, there's not a day that goes by that we don't sin and fall short of his glory. We run from him. So Jesus is telling a story to say, this is exactly what God the Father has done for us. He's given us life, and we say, we want you dead. We only want what you can give us. 
So the father does that, and what happens? The son, and we don't know how this worked, perhaps sold his part of the property to a local businessman outside the family, liquidated those assets, got as much currency as he could, and then he set off to a far distant country. And he starts to spend. That's actually where the word prodigal comes from, spendthrift, someone that wastes. So he starts to spend. He starts to squander. He starts to waste all of his father's hard-earned money on partying while living, and as the older brother will say, prostitutes. This guy is living la vida loca. (laughs) But how many of us know the party ends? That while sin might be enticing for a moment, oh, it comes. It comes with consequences, and the party always ends. You see what happens now, now that he's spent all of his money, now that he's spent all of his money, he has no friends. His friends only loved him because he was keeping the party going. Not only is he now fatherless, familyless, nationless, he's now penniless and friendless. The only thing he can do is sell himself. He's going to sell himself as a servant. And what is that boss, that new boss going to do? He's going to send him out into the fields to feed pigs. Has anyone ever had to feed pigs before? You think it's hard to feed children. (laughs) Pigs, pig slop, pig pods. It gets so bad that it gets to the point where he is tending to the pigs. They are slopping and they are fighting and they're in this awful, smelly, disgusting gunk. It's so bad. He's so hungry. He looks at that slop. He looks at those pods. He looks at this disgusting filth and says, I want that. I'm so desperately hungry and empty. I want to eat the pig's food. How is this not only shocking for any of us, but also scandalous for a Jewish boy? Swine was unclean. This is the lowest, not only of desperation, but of shame. Feeding, caring for, tending, and now wanting to eat the foods that pigs eat? It doesn't get any lower than this. So this is how it works, right? He's made his own bed. He spent all of his money. He burned all of his bridges. He has no one that loves him anymore. And then, because of his bad decisions, life interrupts. Famine hits the land. You understand how this works, right? We think that we can live la vida loca, go crazy, go hog wild, pun intended, and then life is just going to be smooth sailing. No! Famines come. Uh hurting and pain and dishealth come, relational tensions come, battles and wars come, and we have no ability to withstand the storm. So this young man, after he is starving, longing to be fed with the food that the pigs were eating, he has a moment of clarity, and it all picks up in verse 17. Let's look back at the scripture, shall we? Verse 17, the story continues. But when he, the younger brother, the young man, came to himself, underline that, I think that's very helpful, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger, exclamation point. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, listen to this, envision this. Don't just hear the words, envision it. His father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to what? Celebrate. So this man, as it says here, this younger son, he came to himself and he thought about his father. That thought would lead to action because he's thinking to himself, my goodness, I don't claim to think that I can go home and be a son again. But I remember how good my dad was that even the indentured servants, even the hired servants had plenty of bread. Even if I was just a lowly servant, I would be doing better than I am now. So what does he do? This is repentance, ready? He turns. Repentance is not just feeling bad about your life and then continuing to do it. Repentance is changing your mind, changing your heart, and returning, turning from sin and returning to God. And that's what this young man does. Oh, and I love this story. I love this story. I love this story. Because the father, he's waiting for the son. Now, it's true that Jesus, as our good shepherd, he goes and he finds us, and man, he throws us on his back, and he pulls us back home into his flock. I love this image as well, though, because it's both. The father's waiting. The father's longing. The father's expectantly looking, and then he sees his son. It would be at this point that a lot of us would think the father had every single right to all of a sudden lift up his nose, look down on his son, and say, how dare you ever step foot back in my house again? You took my money and you wasted it. You ruined our family name and our reputation. You disrespected me and I'm embarrassed by all of my peers. How dare you come back here? You're lucky I'm going to let you live, much less let you be a hired servant. Is that how the story goes? Oh, this is good. The father sees his son. He is filled with compassion. And he does something that no father or influential businessman, estate owner would do. He's probably wearing a long robe. He sees his son. He probably picks up his son and picks up his robe and starts running to his boy. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care if they're judging him or looking down on him. Why? His boy is home. His son, who once was dead, is now home, alive. His son, who once was lost, is now found. He doesn't care what all the self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees would say. Come here. Come here, son. He welcomes him in his arms. He envelops him in his embrace, and he starts to kiss him. The son starts to say, Dad, I've sinned against what? Heaven. So the son knows that when he sinned against his father, he was sinning against his heavenly father. I've sinned against heaven and before you. Let me be a hired servant. And it's almost like the dad's like, it's okay. I mean, vision, tears in his eyes. It's all right. I love you. Welcome home. And what happens? 
It keeps getting better. The father says, everyone, attention. He gets a robe. He gets a ring. He gets some shoes. And they kill the fatted calf. The ring is very, very important because he wouldn't just be a hired servant in his father's estate anymore. No, the signet ring was to reinstate him as a son of the father. He's not only forgiven, he's also adopted, welcomed home, reinstated. His identity is a son of the father. I heard this beautiful um, song by someone that recently came to Christ, speaking of how this transformation is leading him to want to impact his family and point his family to Christ. The words go like this. This is the prayer. Raise our sons, train them in the faith. Through temptations, make sure they are wide awake. Follow Jesus, listen and obey. No more living for the culture. We are nobody's slave. Stand up for my home, even if I walk this road alone. I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his. I'm no longer my own. You know who said that? Kanye West. Unbelievable. Someone that you would have never guessed after the road that he's been down, after the things that he's done, after the public sins and mistakes that the whole world has seen, now he comes to Christ and he is proclaiming that Jesus is king. Listen, I don't know, Kanye. We got to be a little careful with this stuff. But let's celebrate because I think heaven is. Amen. That the Lord can use this man because I can guarantee you it's coming with a cost. Hollywood is going to look down on him. Everyone's going to judge him. They're going to politicize it. They're going to think he's some kind of tool of something. What I've heard in all the interviews and the songs is truly a heart that's been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what our God does. He welcomes home sons, sons who were once far off. But then he also, he also has compassion on those who can't stand it when God forgives others. The story continues. The celebration isn't a celebration for everyone. No, there's an older brother. And the older brother is outside the celebration. The older brother refuses to celebrate. The older brother speaks to the father with all kinds of grumbling and anger. And he says, how dare you? This son of yours, listen to language. This son of yours who squandered his inheritance with prostitutes and wild living, you kill the fatty calf for him? I've been working for you all my life and you've never given me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Here's language. Remember the audience, tax collectors, sinners, and who? Pharisees. This is the Pharisee. This is the self-righteous, quote-unquote, servant of God. Notice now, both the younger brother before he left and then all the older brother, they both treated God the same way. They had no love for the father. The younger brother was trying to find pleasure in the world. The older brother was trying to manipulate God through his duty, through his morality. Neither of them really cared about God. Neither of them really loved God. They were both using God. One is irreligion. The other is religion. And it's through the third brother. Did you know there's a third brother in this story? There's a third brother. He's the one telling the story. The third brother 
is how we escape the deception of irreligion and religion, where we don't try to manipulate God through our religion and our morality to get things from God. And we don't run to the world for the things that only God can give us. No, it's through the third brother, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus our brother. Where he came, he lived the life that we could not live, we did not live. He died the death that we deserved. He paid the full price and penalty, the totality of our sin, finally and forever on the cross. But the story doesn't stop there. No, he, the brother who once was dead, is now alive. Jesus Christ, who is alive, can give eternal life to those who are the younger brothers in a far distant land. He can bring you home. But you know how this story ends? It's story, the story ends with the sinners and the tax collectors rejoicing with the Father. It doesn't have a happy ending for the Pharisees. It's just open-ended. There's no celebrating. There's no joy. There's no rejoicing. Because in the end, our self-righteousness is our biggest deception. This is why you can be hearing this message and you're like, oh my goodness, I really hope this guy next to me is listening to this. Because I know I don't need it. I know this applies to everyone else but me. Someone once said this, shocking. Satan's greatest masterpiece is not the prostitute, but the Pharisee. We all need grace. We all need to turn from our sin. But those that don't think they have any sin can never know the Savior. So we're going to pray right now, and we're going to have the band come back up. But in the end, who are we in this story? God invites you to celebrate, to join in with heaven. If you are in a distant land, God welcomes you home. If you have a hardened heart, he can make that hard heart a heart of flesh. If you've lost your compassion for the lost world, then please pray, please return, and please don't follow in the empty, angry footsteps of these Pharisees. Amen? As the band comes forward, I'm going to invite everyone else to pray. Let's pray together. Let's close our eyes, reflect upon what we just heard, and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that if there are those who are lost, those who have wandered, those who are wayward, that you, through faith, would bring them home. And if that is you, we invite you now to pray. Pray to God for forgiveness. Pray to God that he would reveal his love for you. Pray to God that he would give you the strength to follow him. But also, if we are honest with ourselves, tragically the prodigals turn into Pharisees. Those who once were lost now judge those who are lost. So we need to come back to the foot of the cross, all of us, and say, God, give me a heart of compassion. Give me a heart of mercy. Help my heart break for that wandering sheep, for that lost coin, for the younger sons, the younger daughters who are still lost and need to be found, who are still dead, and God can make them alive. Pray this simple prayer with me, church, would you? the Lord so leads you. Heavenly Father, please forgive me of my sin. Please fill me with your spirit. I want to know that you love me today. 
Help me turn from myself and from my sin and to follow Jesus Christ, your son. In his good name we pray. Amen.